Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kali. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kali, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kali. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by David Tupin, who is one of the Millennium rock stars right now. So David is a co-founder with Obsidian Capital, along with Glenn Gonzalez. With David, as young as he is, he has achieved so much in such a short time that it is a feat to... Uh, kind of see his success. I have personally met him in many conferences and, and other venues. Uh, a little bit about him. David uh, started back in his 20s from the Michigan area. Now uh, he's into uh, Austin markets and perhaps buying nationwide. Uh, he has already acquired by 20 years, he had already acquired a $7 million portfolio. Uh, you know, he had his own apartment, uh, small complex as well. And he is now well over into $50 million worth of deals and has raised $10 million uh, of capital as well. His company at this point is buying nationwide in a lot of growth markets. And he also has his own uh, multi family deal analyzer software, which is also another thing that we will perhaps discuss the details about. So uh, David, uh, in your own words, maybe share some details about your background and how you kind of came into multifamily. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks for having me on the show here. Um, so I'm a, I say I'm a purebred entrepreneur. I've always run businesses since I could really remember since so I was 13 years old. Um, started a landscaping company and uh, grew that. And, and, and so I think kind of natural progression, went to college, did some uh, corporate, uh, corporate type internships, uh, mm-hmm. investment banking, mm-hmm. consulting type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Wasn't a huge fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned a lot and it was mm-hmm. a great experience. But uh, for me, you know, I wanted to run a business. Real estate was something I'd always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, just seeing people how successful they were in real estate was very appealing to me. So, uh, you know, listen to podcasts, read rich dad, poor dad, like a lot of people. And I think I I caught the bug pretty early Mm -hmm. on. I was, Mm -hmm. I was 19 years old then. So I started, uh, wholesaling a little bit, single family type stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, really didn't, uh, didn't really didn't like scratch that itch for me. You know, Mm -hmm. I really wanted to do larger deals, multifamily commercial, and so uh, when I was 20 years old, I bought my first apartment complex. I, I pretty much just started talking to owners and brokers and running numbers on deals. And, uh, you know, I found a 12 unit complex mm-hmm. and raised some capital uh, and, and bought it. I had no money in my own bank account, you know, maybe sitting sure. on a couple thousand bucks saved sure. up. And mm-hmm. so pretty much all the money came from investors mm-hmm. uh, and I put it in the sweat equity to get a deal done and um, just kept doing it from there. So sure, sure, all sure. I do today is I buy apartments. I, I, I develop now. Uh, I do ground up, you know, doing a 50 unit ground up and 150 unit ground up deal. Um, and I started a real estate software company. 
So awesome, awesome, incredible to see a success, and uh, congratulations on all the success you have achieved so far. Thank uh, you. Uh, you know, it's it, it's such a pleasure, and you are such a role model to a lot of folks as well. So uh, now, David, um, uh, give us some examples, of perhaps you know, like folks who are looking into various markets and stuff like that. What's the best way you suggest folks to get started? Like, what are some of the sort of the groundwork they can lay to kind of get into multifamily game perhaps? Yeah, I think there's so many, you know, there's so many ways to look at this because there are, you know, uh, a, a plethora of great markets out there and there's a lot of not great markets out there. Sure. Um, but even to people that you might say, hey, this is not really a great market, to some people it still might be. Uh, hmm. Let's take Detroit, for example, where I grew up. Sure. Right? A lot of people here in Detroit, it's not a good market. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in a lot of respects, there's a ton of areas that aren't, uh, but you go out into the suburbs outside the city of Detroit and there's a lot of fantastic areas to invest, mm -hmm. regardless of what uh, metrics might tell you. I've made a ton of money investing in deals outside of Detroit. Uh, sure. And so it's because I know the right pockets to invest in, where to invest, where not to. It's kind of the classic, you know, are you on the right side of the tracks or not? Sure, sure. If you're north of eight mile, you're going to be a little bit better off than if you're south of eight mile and you're in Detroit, right? So sure, sure. Um, same, same goes for a lot of other cities. Uh, you know, I, I, have, I have friends that invest in very tertiary markets and do fantastically because, just because they, they focus there. They know which properties to buy. They buy them for the right price uh, and, and, and they make it work. Um, and then I know people that say, hey, unless they have just fantastic overall growth metrics, less, you know, unless it's a city like Atlanta or Austin or Dallas mm -hmm. or Denver, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not, I'm not investing there um, because it's not a good enough market. And so there's a lot of ways to evaluate a market. Um, I think that if, if you're, if you're going to look high level and statistically at a market, uh, you're going to find, you know, you're going to find some good places to invest. And I think that's important to do to know, know how you're, City statistically is growing population-wise, job-wise, all that. It's very important. Uh, but at the same time, when you really get down to it, you know, you, you can't you can't make every deal happen just by looking at at it on Google Maps. You got to hit sure. the streets and know, am I in the right part of town? Mm -hmm. And the best way to do that, uh, from what I've learned, um, not, you know, first of all, by going there and visiting there. You know, I'm always flying all over and looking at deals, different markets, making sure put my eyes on it. But at the same sure. time, talking to owners and property managers and brokers in that market and asking mm -hmm. them, is this a good part of town? And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times I hear you don't want to be investing there. And as a deal that I was really excited about that maybe looked good on paper, sure, but sure. they're like, Hey, listen, that's, that's not where you want to be. And so um, you just got to do your research and realize that, you know, there's data and then there's the, the hands-on aspect and you got to have both. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, and, and I love that aspect. You said there's data side and there's obviously the human intelligence side that what folks mm -hmm. are telling you, they are advising, are you on the right side of the tracks and things like that. So yeah. speaking of that, uh, let's say the human component of it, uh, David, are you continuously sort of uh, networking with brokers or what are some of the things like, you know, you, as you said, that you are traveling all over the place to all the different cities and stuff like that. Could you maybe perhaps share that what are some of the questions you are asking brokers? Are you perhaps looking at some OMs and saying that, hey, the price per unit looks pretty good. Let me you know, connect with a few more brokers and understand what's in the market. What, what are some of your sort of back of the hand uh, things that you're constantly doing on a daily basis when you're talking to brokers? 
Yeah, I think um, in terms of like looking at a deal, I, I think, you know, anytime you look at the first deal in a new market, it's almost impossible for you to know, like, is it a great deal or not, right? Um, sure. I mean, I mean, you might, if it's like a really phenomenal deal, it might pop out to you. But at the same time, what I've always figured was I'm really going to have to look at 10, 20, 30 deals in a market to really start getting an understanding of what things sell and trade for in certain markets, Sure. you know, price per unit, where the rents should be. Uh, standard rental rates, you know, where can I get the rents to, what should my expenses look like? What, you know, what are, what are property taxes look like across 30 B class properties mm-hmm. in Indianapolis mm-hmm. versus Austin? It's going to be significantly different. Sure. Austin, I might be averaging 16 to 1800 a unit on the taxes, which is absolutely crazy, but it's true. Sure. Sure. Um, and in a city like Indianapolis, I might be at 800 to 1100 uh, sure. unit on taxes. And so, you know, I'm just looking at a lot of deals and a lot of data points and, mm-hmm. and being very hands-on with that as an owner and a buyer. Um, and, uh, you know, but things I'm asking brokers, uh, same kind of thing, like where, what's a good area to be investing? What do you see? Uh, why do you see this property as a good deal? Like, what, just explain it to me. What's the story behind it? Sure. Uh, that's one of my, one of my favorite questions. And it's probably one of the first questions I ask every broker is what's the story behind this deal? Mm-hmm. Why do they mm-hmm. want to sell? Sure. If they're the typical syndicator uh, uh, owner and, you know, they went in, they renovated 50% of units and now they're trying to sell for max value top dollar and they're putting it on market with the call for offers. 99% of the time, that's not a deal I want to buy, honestly. <laughs> Every deal I've ever bought that has made myself and my investors a lot of money have been off market deals with a good story. Um, you know, the broker brought it to us. Uh, because we had a relationship with them and timing worked well and we owned something in the area and they're like, Hey, check, check this out. This owner's ready to sell. You need to move fast and we get it locked up and it's a great deal. Stuff like that. Um, you know, you know, a lot of the typical deals where it's like call for offers, marketed bidding wars, like that's not really our, our, our typical vibe. So, um, I'm really just digging into the owner more than just like, Hey, you know, what, uh, what's, what's, what can we do with this property? What's the story with it? Sure. Um, how, how well do they take care of it? Are they good owners, operators? Mm-hmm. Who's the management company? Mm-hmm. They self-manage it. Is it mom and pop? Is it professional management? Um, stuff like that. Sure. Sure. So now speaking of that sort of the mom and pop owners, or perhaps, you know, we talk about legacy owners, like, you know, they've been, I mean, like perhaps as we know that sometimes these multifamily assets have been in the family for perhaps sometimes generations for that matter. Right. So are you doing any off market uh, uh, sort of activity in terms of like, say, are you doing any marketing or, or anything like that? Would you advise uh, to do that uh, or, or perhaps or just go straight to the brokers? Uh, we do. We do both. Um, I like to hit them in every direction. So we've got tons of broker relationships in each market that we look that we're always in communication with. Uh, but then we've got a really strong off market, off market targeting system. And so I've got a team of 10 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it varies anywhere between seven to 10 people at any given time. Sure. Um, acquisitions people that uh, their sole job, I provide them with lists of owners and phone numbers. Mm-hmm. Their job every week is to call 50 to hundred owners mm-hmm. uh, each and get in touch and, and ask, you know, are they open to receiving an offer from us? So, mm-hmm. you know, we make anywhere, we make 500 plus calls a week, our team. Um, and, and our, my structure with them is if they bring a deal that we end up buying at, or buying, uh, you know, I'll bring them in on the equity and, and give them a fee up front as well. 
And so I'm kind of educating them along the way too. You know, these are other people, uh, young people or people that want to get into, uh, into the space, into multifamily ownership and want to learn about it. And so um, that, that's kind of how that's structured. And then I also send a lot of mailers. We have a machine that stuffs, you know, tons of mailers. And so we send out, you know, about 500 a week when we're in acquisitions mode, direct to owner. Sure, so, sure. Sure. Thank you for sharing that, uh, David. And also, like now speaking of underwriting, uh, David, that you obviously have uh, developed your own uh, underwriting software as well. What are some of the things that you were thinking that, um, you know, you need to have your own flavor of underwriting? And what was something that you did not like about existing underwriting uh, uh, softwares and you kind of decided to kind of jump on and uh, have your own uh, software as well? Yeah, so I think that's that's one of the things that from the start has kind of been my strength is the numbers. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've never used anyone else's tool because when I started four or five years ago, I, I, I just had a very simple spreadsheet that I built myself. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it kind of just grew and grew over time uh, to the point where I actually started selling it. Sure. And in the past year and a half, I've, I've sold almost six figures worth of a spreadsheet mm-hmm. uh, through word of mouth. Awesome. So <laughs> what I decided to do because of that was uh, that in 95 to 99% of people still use Excel in this. It's a very, um, it's a very dated industry, private equity, real estate, this type of stuff. And so uh, in some ways and on the, on the equity and investment side. And so everyone's using Excel and in my mind, software is a much better solution. Sure. So I started a company last year called Real Estate Lab. Mm-hmm. Our, our sole goal, uh, we're developing a, uh, about a half a million dollar software program right now. It's just our first version. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's going to solve the underwriting process for a lot of people. It's going to make it easier. It's going to, for people that hate Excel, that don't know how to underwrite deals, that want to get into the business, but that's like a big hurdle for them. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is the solution. Um, and it's also going to help people that are already sophisticated, analyze more deals quicker and more organized. And so it's all web-based. You can upload T uh, T12 and a rent roll, which are the main financial documents that, you know, the seller provides you or the owner provides you sure. or, the, or the broker to analyze a property. Mm-hmm. You upload them, it'll read it, it'll pull out the key data, the unit mix, the rents, everything. It'll put them into the analyzer for you. You make a couple of assumptions and, and you can print, generate reports, look at your returns in real time mm-hmm. uh, as you make assumptions. And so um, send LOIs through the software, track all the deals you're looking at on a map. So it's it's a full multifamily acquisitions platform from start to finish. I see. I see. Awesome. Sounds very interesting. Uh, so now speaking of, you know, sort of the markets evaluation, uh, David, and things like that, what are some of the things you are looking for uh, in terms of like different sub markets and stuff? Like, uh, are you looking for like a good story? Are you looking for like rent bumps in, in potential assets? What are some of the things that jump out to you when you are looking at different sub markets? Yeah, I like, uh, well, in terms of the, su- the market itself, the sub-market, um, you know, I like, I really like B areas. Mm-hmm. I don't really, I don't really play much in C areas anymore. So I like B areas, something where you could very safely walk around at night and you wouldn't feel uncomfortable. That's sure. kind of how I would describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Something where uh, the class of tenant treats the property um, with a little bit uh, more respect, I'd say. And so, you know, the, the, the quality of the asset, I think, uh, is maintained a lot better over time. Sure. Um, and so you pay a little bit more for these properties, but if you find the right ones, uh, there's always kind of a dog in every market like this. There's always that one property on the street that's not as well taken care of. 
Mm-hmm. And that's the one that I like. Mm-hmm. And so I can go in and everyone else is renting their two bedrooms for a thousand, but mine, mine here at 800, mm-hmm. I can go and renovate them and get them up to a thousand. Sure. Um, and so that's what we're looking for. We're looking for value add properties where I could buy at a wholesale discount. I never pay market value for any property. Mm-hmm. I always pay at, buy at a discount. And, and the way to do that is you just look at a lot of deals and oh. you find the one that's good and where somebody is, is either willing to or unknowingly selling to you below market value. Sure. Sure. Now the whole aspect about selling under market or perhaps, you know, you're dealing in multifamily. Sometimes you are definitely, uh, you know, dealing with a lot more sophisticated owners and things like that. So what, like, as you're looking at sort of the deals and, you know, let's say you're looking at a rent roll or T12 and things like that, uh, what are some of the things that uh, you would advise uh, that, uh, you know, investors should look at? uh, And I'm kind of referring to, you know, all the details uh, that go in uh, on that, whether it's, you know, let's say the contract services, the payroll, the, you know, whether their maintenance is high and things like that. Can you perhaps share some key data points that you look for? Yeah, uh, on the underwriting, the biggest things I look at are going to be, you know, what where are the average rents right now for each unit type mm-hmm. and where can I get them? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's probably one of the first things that that sets your top line revenue number. Like what where, where can I get my revenue to on this property? Mm-hmm. Um, what are other ways I can add or increase revenue other than just rents? Can I bill back utilities? Mm-hmm. Can I go in and, uh, you know, put all new low flow toilets in and reduce our water sewer costs, maybe sure. mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. Can I add storage lockers or can I um, add, you know, pet fees or is there something that they're not charging that's typical that I could charge and there's a market for. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next thing is, you know, you go down the income statement, you got the expenses next right after the income. Sure, so sure. the expenses, some things I'm looking for is uh, normalizing your taxes. So mm-hmm. where are my ta- property taxes going to go after I buy the property? Most sure. times and most states, I mean, it's different everywhere, but most states, they get reassessed after you buy a property mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. your taxes can go way up depending on where they were before and where the market's at. So you got to kind of figure that out. Um, that's its own little equation and 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 uh you know you gotta you gotta kind of talk to the assessors and figure out exactly how to calculate that sure sure. um but really when i'm looking at expenses i'm looking a lot of times at a metric uh which is a per unit cost annual per unit cost so let's Mm -hmm. say i have 100 units and my taxes are or let's say my insurance is a hundred thousand a year which is Mm -hmm. a bad example uh but it would it would mean that my per unit annual cost for insurance is a thousand dollars Mm-hmm. which is really high, I would say, for pretty much any property. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we're normally in the, you know, 350 to 450 per mm-hmm. unit annual mm-hmm. range for insurance. So, uh, and that yeah, kind of leads to that point, right? I, I know across the board in all these different categories, repairs and maintenance, insurance, advertising, marketing, um, contract services, turnover, like what are, what are those average per unit costs? And so I can go into really any property, even if you didn't give me financial statements, I could probably tell you within a decent range what it should be operated at. Um, sure, sure. You know, and most properties overall per unit operate in the high 4,000s to the high 5,000s, I would say, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere mm-hmm. in that range is, is, a, is a good average. Mm-hmm. So once you start looking at these enough, you start picking up on these metrics and you start seeing trends. Sure, sure. And that's when you become really good and powerful at underwriting. It's when you start noticing the trends and you can quickly uh, evaluate a deal um, and find out what, what looks right, what looks off, what can I change? 
Sure, sure. Now, yeah. also, you know, related question, David, is that a lot of times when you're looking at, uh, let's say, the broker's OM, you are, you are seeing like, you know, especially the pro forma, brokers are like literally saying, hey, the bad debt is really minimal or perhaps, you know, uh, really obscene uh, rent bumps and things like that. So what are some of the tri tips and tricks you can share uh, when you are sort of looking at the OMs that you can kind of share with viewers? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is I'll, I'll read some of the, the, the descriptions and the um, some of the data points that are like factual in terms of, uh, you know, the structure of the building, square footage, mm -hmm. the unit mix, uh, you know, when was the roof last replaced, what, what was recent CapEx that was done. In terms of the brokers pro formas, I mean, no offense to all the brokers that I work with, but mm -hmm. I never look at them. Um, I haven't in years, to be honest with you. I, I, I make my own and I, I work off the actual financials that property or that they've given us, the actual property financials. Um, I'll never, never look at a pro forma from a broker because um, their job is to sell the property. And sure. so their numbers are going to reflect selling the property right they're going to make them look good and, and, and nice so sure. um you know it's it i i always do my own numbers i, I never look at those got it got it now speaking of you know sort of the new development that you're doing now david why perhaps that excites you more than just keep do uh, like for example buying you know more and more uh multi-family existing assets like why why kind of venture into new development could you maybe share uh, your sort of thought process into it yeah, uh, for now, at least, I, you know, we probably still do 80% of our main businesses existing and 20% new development. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I see the 20% new development projects. Those are all going to be very long-term holds for us as a company. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we're investing a lot of our own cash into those deals. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, because they're brand new, good quality, it's something that we can hold for 20 years, not really have to worry about a lot of large maintenance issues. You know, sure. the, the it's not talked about a lot, but the reason a lot of people do these three to five to seven year uh, life cycles on syndications is because, um, you know, once they get into a property, they raise enough capital up front to do a lot of the major CapEx, but, you know, they're, they're not planning from day one to do the roofs in 10 years when they need to be redone if they, you know, if they've only got 10 years left. They're hoping sure. that they're going to sell it in five and the next buyer is going to do that. Sure. So um, to have an asset that's brand new, and uh, we can hold it for a long, long time and not have to worry about a lot of the, the physical aspects I think is important, but also they provide really high returns if you buy the right piece of land and build them right, lease them up in, in a good area. And so we're, we're only building right now in Austin, mm -hmm. which is a high growth market. Sure. And I could see us doing a couple hundred million dollars development in the next, I'd say next three to five years, uh, just in Austin there. I, mm -hmm. I, I'd really like to um, continue um, building in Austin, a big portfolio. Absolutely, absolutely, uh, and there are plenty of reasons why why you you, you should definitely do do yeah. all that there for yeah. sure. Uh, now, speaking of uh, property management uh, and you know, sort of uh, looking over the existing assets and stuff, uh, sure. uh, you know, how how are you kind of you know interfacing with your existing property managers? What what are some of the reports and things like that you look for, uh, you know, uh, from all your property managers on a continual basis? Yeah, so uh, we have an asset management team in-house that that does all of the interaction really with the management companies after we close on an asset. Mm -hmm. um, and so the interaction really uh, is probably done with every property a couple times a week. 
mm-hmm. will communicate with the, if not almost daily, mm-hmm. you know, communicating with the uh, regional managers and the on-site management team, um, and, and oftentimes the uh, back-end accounting office with the management company, uh, you know, reviewing their weekly cash positions, um, you know, profit and losses, collection reports, mm-hmm. uh, uh, occupancy status trackers, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and, uh, status of, you know, renovations, if we're, re- if we're doing a unit renovation program currently, uh, we're renovating vacants, you know, all of that is being communicated on, uh, on almost a daily basis, I'd say, uh, with the management companies. So mm-hmm. we always know exactly where they're at and, and we're taking the data they give us and we're putting them into our own, you know, software and trackers and stuff like that. So we, we really know the exact position of the property at any time we have a snapshot. Sure. So, um, what that does is not only. Uh, uh, not only keeps us in the loop and informed mm-hmm. um, and allows us to make really good decisions on, you know, where the property should be going, how our expenses doing, what do we need to cut? What do we need to push? Uh, but it also puts a lot of pressure on the management company. Mm-hmm. Um, an owner that communicates with them once a month or once every other month is, is not going to get the same amount of attention to somebody that's communicating with them every day and put a lot of pressure sure. on them. So sure, sure. that's part of the strategy as well. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I see. So very close uh, relationship with property managers and working with them almost hand in hand, kind of. Uh, yeah. uh, so you are hands on more or less and kind of working as a partner with property managers. Yeah. So that that sort of close relationship and keeping them on their uh, sort of checks and keeping them on their toes is uh, kind of. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I, I, and we I, also tour the properties, uh, you know, once to twice a month, more once every week, a lot of times in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, you know, once it's more stabilized and running once a month um, or twice a month, we're mm-hmm. at the property itself, physically mm-hmm. inspecting and making sure that everything's good, bringing up items that maybe they missed, stuff like that. I see. Just, just I... meeting, you know, the man, on-site managers really like to meet with the ownership group too. And they like to know that the owners, owners care. Absolutely. That's important. They're, they're employees on-site and they're working for you. So, you know, we want to show them that we do care and that, uh, you know, their hard work is appreciated and important to us. Absolutely. What they do is extremely valuable. I couldn't agree more. Now, on a related topic, like let's say when you purchase the deal, there is always some aspect in uh, the of improvements that we have to do, right? So whether it is some parts of exterior and perhaps a lot of, uh, you know, like cosmetic upgrades within interior units and things like that. What is your sort of uh, favorite way that you proceed? Are you doing perhaps exterior improvements, whether it is, uh, you know, landscaping or, you know, sort of uh, seal coating your driveways, things like that improvements to leasing office uh, and stuff like that before you move into interiors uh, and and I know this can be you know sort of change on asset to asset uh, depending on what what that asset requires but w- what is some of your thought process behind uh, sort of starting with your capex improvements so going into it we we determined a pretty pretty thorough budget even before we make our first offer I like to you know I mean, sometimes we'll, we'll be very conservative based on like photos and stuff and make an offer, but a lot of times we'll actually tour the asset itself and uh, myself, my, my business partner is, is very good at this. Uh, we'll just eyeball a lot of things and, and put a, a renovation kind of a budget number to it, right? And then mm-hmm. once we get a property under contract and actually get it bid out and, and, and new items maybe come up and stuff, we kind of mold that into a, a more solid budget by the time we close and then we have a final uh, renovation budget. Uh, that's that's given to the GC, um, and so uh, at that point, really, we put a we put a, a chart or timeline together, saying, okay, we have um, we have uh, you know five hundred thousand dollars in 
um, exterior and common area improvements. Maybe mm -hmm. that's uh, seal coat the parking lot, stripe it, uh, repair siding, replace you know X amount of broken windows, uh, paint the railings on the uh, stairwells, paint mm -hmm. the common areas on the inside, redo the leasing office. And so we kind of have a timeline for all that to get that going right away mm -hmm. and, and be completed as soon as possible because the more we can uh, improve the appeal of the exterior of the property if it's lacking in that area, the, the sooner we're gonna attract more residents and, and get achieve those higher rents. But in the meantime, while we're doing that, we're still uh, starting right away off day one with any vacant units. Mm -hmm. if, that, if our plan is to renovate units, we're starting to renovate units day one. And uh, what we do to throttle how many units that we renovate. Maybe we're renovating units and they're not leasing as fast as we would like, or we're not really fully hitting our rent and it takes an extra week to get our rent. We're gonna, we're gonna start dropping, what we do to throttle that is we drop our renewal rate a little bit. So maybe, maybe they're at 800 and renovated, it's gonna be at 1,050. Mm -hmm. uh, we might say, hey, if you wanna stay in, to, to force vacancy, we might say, hey, your renewal rate is 925 or 950. And uh, maybe 20% of people will say, okay, I'll pay that and stay. The rest of the people are either gonna leave uh, or they're gonna say, hey, if I'm gonna pay 950, I might as well pay 1,000 or 1,050 and get the renovated unit. Mm -hmm. So um, if, we want, if we don't want as much vacancy, uh, and we don't want to renovate more units because of the fact that we're not hitting our rents as fast, we'll start saying, hey, we'll just renew you at 825 or 850, right? And mm -hmm. we'll have a lot more people stay around. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's kind of our throttle. If we are hitting our rents right away and releasing fast, we'll say, hey, you got to renew at 950. Like, that's hard. Like, you either take it or you leave it. It'll force a lot of vacancy from old tenants. Sure. Uh, and then we'll get in, we'll renovate more units and achieve a higher rent. Sure, sure. Makes sense. Makes sense. Now, uh, speaking of the COVID pandemic, uh, David, uh, as we all know, uh, you know, a lot of tenants are affected in terms of, you know, whether they have job losses sure. or hours being cut and things like that. So it kind of is kind of hitting the books in terms of, you know, some people are late or perhaps not able to pay and things like that. So typically, you know, as we say, the C class perhaps is a lot more affected than typically a B class property and things like that. So as we move forward through the year and kind of seeing the effects of pandemic, as we are underwriting the deals and stuff, you know, we know that the NOI is kind of fluctuating quite a lot in a lot of places. How, how do you sort of see this playing out? Uh, how, how, how can someone safeguard against all, all of some of these gyrations that are happening? Yeah, I mean, I think we've found a lot of ways as a country to open a lot of things back up as opposed <laughs> to what was closed in April, May. Sure. Uh, so we've got a lot more things that are open. We've still got a high unemployment rate compared to where we were at before, obviously. Um, people aren't making as much. A lot of jobs were cut. So and a lot of businesses still aren't able to be open. Um, so there's not as much you know money circulating and, and that's going to cause issues with people paying the rent. Sure. Uh, so I think what we're going to see happen, because I believe just nine days ago, you know, mid-July, the stimulus money, uh, that extra extra check every week ran out, right? They stopped paying sure. that. And so sure. I think what we're going to see coming through the end of this month and in August is going to be a, a decent, I don't know if it's going to be massive, but a decent dip in collections and, mm. um, uh, you know, um, you know, rental increases, I think, are, are going to be um, almost non-existent the next month or two. Sure. So I think what that's going to either do is, is once people start seeing, uh, it, you know, government money has stopped and the economy is actually, you know, not 
not um, not unrealistically uh, inflated by the government money that they're channeling in. I think we're going to either see more businesses, uh, we're going to see a bigger negative effect, which I think is going to push more businesses to want to reopen back up, and they're going to get creative and 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 force themselves to open back up in creative ways, um, which will only partially solve the problem. Or the government's going to pump more money in, which is really still just another temporary solution. So, sure. um, and I think everybody's, everybody's trying to do is just buy time till we get a vaccine, right? <laughs> so, sure. I do think we're going to have a tough August in September. Um, our our collections were fantastic. Uh, March, April, May, um, June they went a little stagnant, and July so far they've been a little stagnant on point with June. So, hmm. um, I think August will. My prediction is it's going to go down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Awesome. And do you see this pandemic tra- sort of giving ourselves into some more opportunities, let's say in 2021 or 2022? What do you see sort of the midterm layout? Uh, I mean, I know you're networking with a lot more investors and things like that. Do you see this pandemic giving us a lot more opportunities coming forward? Yeah, I always think with struggles like this come out of opportunity. I'm a very opportunist person. And so I, I do believe a ton of opportunities going to pop up. I think it's really weird though, because we've been artificially propped up. Mm-hmm. And so people, you know, thing, things have changed a lot significantly. Like the fact that you can't go into a property and just charge whatever rent you want, get it anymore. You know, I think that is a big change. Right. And, and, and we can't be predicting 3% rent growth every year. I'm predicting sure. 0% rent growth for the first two years in a lot of these deals that we're looking at now. So um, with a lot of those facts in mind, a lot of sellers are still unrealistic with their pricing expectations. Sure. And there's a gap, there's a big gap. So you're either having to find people who are in really distressed situations and you could get a deal because of that. Mm-hmm. And they're really motivated because of something or, they, or they're motivated because another opportunity came up, they want to take advantage of it. They want to sell something quick. I mean, um, or or you're you're taking it, you know, classic maybe more mom and pop scenario, uh, sure. which we mm-hmm. bought out of those type of deals. So, I think that there's still a big gap. I think opportunities are there to be had uh, for sure uh, for those who are looking hard. Um, but I still think there's a there's a weird kind of thing going on right now. Some people are still paying high prices for properties, and I just don't think it's justified. Sure. Same as they're doing 2019, but almost almost even worse now. It almost seems really even even dumber. Sure, so. sure, sure, sure. No, it is it is a risky proposition sometimes to kind of continue doing same thing given you know what what has happened. And I, I think sometimes you know as we all like to say that you know patience uh, can you know uh, have its own rewards. Uh, and you know trying to be impatient and just to do a deal to just uh, you know kind of get into a deal can be disastrous. Uh, would you agree? <laughs> I agree. I agree. I mean, you've got to always be very conservative and realistic. I think that's one of the reasons that I, I, all the deals I've done to date have been successful is just because I'm, I'm conservative and a lot, very logical with my assumptions. Uh, and, we, and we take a lot of precautions like big rainy day funds and reserves and stuff like that. And so we don't over leverage you know. Sure, sure. Sounds good. So uh, thank you, David, for coming on. Uh, it is a pleasure to always network with you and see all the bigger, better things you are uh, up to. Uh, kindly share with our listeners, uh, you know, how they can find you and learn uh, all the uh, things that are going on around you. <laughs> yeah, the best way is Instagram. Uh, follow me at Real Estate Jedi, mm-hmm. uh, or you can check me out on my website, obsidiancapitalco.com. 
Uh, it's spelled O-B-S-I-D-I-A-N. And, uh, you know, hit me up, hit me up there, hit me up in Instagram, go on Facebook, David Tupin, YouTube channel, David Tupin, uh, and we'd love to hear from you. Awesome. So thank you for coming on, David. It, it is a pleasure to always uh, network with you. <laughs> Thanks, my friend. You as well. See. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.